Well, welcome. My name is Joe. I am one of the elders here at Redemption Church, uh, Redemption Arcadia. Redemption is one church with 10 congregations. This uh, congregation, Arcadia, is led by four pastors, um, Tyler, who you just saw, Trey, who you'll meet later, uh, Frank, who is for some reason in Iowa today, um, <laughs> and Tyler James, who's preaching at Redemption Flagstaff. Uh, we're led by a, a local elder board. And a little bit about us, for those of you who are new, is we are uh, gospel-centered and outward focus. And every week we say we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. And I can see a couple people wearing a t-shirt that says that right now, um, which are available in the back. I have a couple announcements for you. First, though, I would like to dismiss the fourth through sixth graders, if there's anyone in here that's uh, of that age group. You know, welcome to leave now. Two announcements, but I think we have slides for these. The first is that we have a blood drive on Monday, August 9th. Um, take a look at our website to schedule your time. It should be directly on the homepage at redemptionarcadia.com. And the second is that we, uh, now that we're into August, we have a different fundraiser for Hope Women's. You'll find information right by the Connect desk in the back if you'd like to donate uh, school supplies. There's lists of what they need. Um, connect with Andrea or Stephanie uh, or just Go to the Connect Desk and get a card before you leave. Uh, before I invite Ben up, it's my privilege and honor this morning to introduce uh, who's be, who'll be bringing the message today, Aaron Baer. Uh, we have in from Ohio. Many of you know Aaron and his wife, Maria. They were members and deacons uh, at Redemption Arcadia five years ago. It was five years ago this month that we sent them off back to Ohio. Um, they served in a variety of capacities here, led RC, uh, Maria was part of the worship team, and it was really hard. I didn't know I was going to get emotional. It was really hard when they left. Um, dear friends of mine, but Aaron's work took him back to Columbus, where he now leads a nonprofit Christian organization. Maria writes for various um, outlets, including Christianity Today uh, and Breakpoint. And many of you who don't know the Bears know the other bear which would be Ben, who I'll invite up here in just a moment because he's faithfully served in our, our children's ministry. And the reason that I get emotional is because this family uh, has been such a blessing to my family and they've been such a blessing to this church, a long lasting blessing. Um, I said a moment ago that we believe all of life is all for Jesus. And the Bears have been a family that since I've met them have been dedicated to the fullness of the redemption um, and ushering God's glory onto this earth. And so with that, I'd like to invite Ben up for the reading and then invite Aaron up for the message. Will you please rise for the reading of God's word? The reading for today comes from Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 23 through 31. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. 
Shall we then listen to you and to all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning, Redemption Arcadia. It is a, a blessing uh, to be here with you today uh, and to uh, take on this scripture passage. You can see why Frank fled to Iowa uh, when you have to deal with something like this. But uh, no, it is, uh, it, is a true, uh, <laughs> it is a true honor to be with you. Five years ago this month, as, as Joe said, I walked out of those doors right there in tears because of the love uh, that we uh, felt in this building uh, amongst this people and with those people in particular and thinking, God, why would you take us away from such love? Uh, and he didn't. Uh, he sent us to Ohio uh, to, to, to a, a, a new calling, a, a different life, but by his grace, uh, he has kept us uh, connected to you all. And, and I just, I want to say, uh, one, uh, just uh, what an honor it is to be before you, uh, two, how jealous I am of you all that you get to sit under the preaching of Frank Switzer every week. Uh, I will tell you, uh, I'll share a little bit more about my work in just a minute, but uh, I, have the, I have the privilege of working with a lot of churches, a lot of pastors. Uh, there are very few uh, that take the word of God uh, as seriously and, and teach, treat it with such holiness uh, as Frank Switzer and, and try to unpack it in a way that's meaningful. Uh, you know, I, I love the song that we did at the end there, that our, our hope is in Jesus. I hope, my prayer for you all here, and I, I am literally jumping with joy for excitement to talk to you all this morning, because uh, the, I, I hope that you leave here today knowing that our hope is in Jesus. Amen, church? Amen. Our hope is in Jesus. That's what we're here to talk about. That's what you do every Sunday here. That's what we should wake up every morning recognizing that our hope is in Jesus, and I hope you leave here today with a, a better appreciation, I hope I leave here this morning with a better appreciation and understanding that our hope is only in Jesus, in Christ crucified. Uh, so as, as Joe said, my name is Aaron Baer. Uh, I, uh, I, I lived in uh, Arizona, my wife and I, uh, and, and our, our actually only our, our oldest daughter, Naomi, uh, lived in Arizona for a little bit of a time. We, we were here seven years. We now have Naomi, who's five, and Ellie, who's two. Um, uh, I, now I run an organization uh, in Ohio called Center for Christian Virtue. Actually, we have a sister organization here in Arizona called Center for Arizona Policy. Uh, we are a, a Christian public policy organization, uh, so I am a lobbyist, which makes me not qualified at all to stand before you here this morning, but the grace of God covers all types of uh, people, uh, uh, even lobbyists. There's, there's even hope for, for us, us lobbyists out there. Um, faith background, uh, actually, uh, some of you might know this, that uh, Ben and I are actually ethnically, we're Jewish. Uh, we believe in, in Christ as Yeshua, as Jesus the Messiah. Um, so in Ohio, I get the joke all the time about why I left Ohio and came out to Phoenix, is that as a Jew, I have a mandate to wander the desert for some time uh, before going home to the promised land. Now, that works in Ohio really well, because they don't know my brother's still here. And I, I'll just say, yeah, there's always that one Jew that wandered off and stuck in the desert, and that was Ben. Uh, but... Uh, that, I, I will say that's the other thing that um, you know, I have a, a, a deep love for my brother, uh, and uh, he builds me up every day. And 
uh, it warms my heart to know that he has such a great community here uh, to serve and to serve with. So uh, God bless you all for, for loving my brother well and loving uh, our family here well. Uh, uh, now, now th- this section we're going to be going through today is, a, is quite the, uh, the difficult passage to be going through. Um, and, and I will tell you, uh, for the, the first time I read this section, as you can see, my Bible's got a little bit of uh, wear and tear into it. And the first time I read this uh, section, uh, many, many years ago, I was quite confused by it. You could actually throw up, uh, in my Bible here, this is a picture of it. I put a question mark right by this section because I said, God, what are you doing here? This is, this is a little bit racist, a little, you know, blaming foreign women for marrying Jews and all this. It, it is a, a very confusing section, and the whole chapter itself uh, is, is quite uh, confusing. But I will tell you, and, and Frank didn't know this when he invited me in to, to preach uh, this Sunday, uh, but Nehemiah is actually my favorite book of the Bible, and chapter 13 is actually my favorite chapter of my favorite book of the Bible. I love talking about Nehemiah 13. I love preaching on Nehemiah 13 because it is so rich, and it's so real. Guys, I, I can't encourage you enough when you're reading God's Word to, to read this as, of, of actual historical accounts of real people, and when you read it through that lens, instead of just a, you know, a story of an imaginary time, you, you can understand and connect with what's happening. And it makes the glory and the promise and the mercy of Jesus Christ all the more rich. And we're going to see that today in chapter 13. But I, before, I, before I do that, I want to put us in some context. For those of you who maybe you weren't here for the, the, the previous Sundays or uh, you know, you're, you're not too familiar with the book of Nehemiah, I want to put us in a little bit of context. I will tell you, if you haven't been here for the previous Sundays, go back and check out the podcast. Frank and Trey have done a phenomenal job unpacking this, unpacking this book. Um, but let's go through just a little bit of historical context. I have a, a, a small timeline here that's not perfect in proportion, but you guys will get the gist. Uh, so, so really, the, the story of Nehemiah all is around the city of Jerusalem and the temple in particular. Uh, and so we're going to talk about the temple. You know, the, the, the temple was actually built. Uh, so many of you would be familiar with King David. Uh, so King David is, you know, maybe the most famous king of Jerusalem, of Israel. Uh, and from D- King David, Jesus came, right? So King David's son, Solomon, built the first temple in about 957 BC, right? And so fast forward about 400 years. And you have, you know, this ongoing tale uh, of the Jews living in Jerusalem, uh, sort of constantly uh, disobeying God's word, right? And God showing his grace and his mercy to them, and, but, but them continually running away from them. And ultimately, God kind of just releases them into their sin. And what ends up happening is King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians come, and they sack Jerusalem uh, in 586, uh, and they destroy the temple. And the Jews are exiled. So this is the famous exile of the Jews out of uh, Jerusalem. And many of them are taken back to Babylonia. They're, they're kind of spread all over the place. Right? And then uh, you move forward to about 538, uh, and in 538 is where the, really what the, the Jews used to understand is the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, which are now two separate books, the book of Ezra, which comes right before Nehemiah, and then the book of Nehemiah. They used to be understood as one book because uh, they're really one narrative. The book of uh, Ezra picks up at about 538. Right? So this is, this is where we see uh, the Persians then and King Cyrus. They conquer the Babylonians. Uh, and King Cyrus allows for the Jews to go back to Israel, to go back to Jerusalem, right? And this guy named Zerubbabel in 535 leads the first group of Jews back. Uh, and then in 516, you have Ezra, the prophet and the priest. He rebuilds the temple. 
So the city of Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed, but Ezra in 516 rebuilds the temple. What's important about this temple in particular is this temple would be the one uh, that in, in its basic form would be what Jesus would have visited when he was a child and growing up uh, and really in, into his adulthood when he's back in Jerusalem before he's crucified. Uh, this would be the temple that Jesus would have been at. So Ezra rebuilds that in 516 and you hear about that account in the book of Ezra. Then it leads into the book of Nehemiah. Uh, and Nehemiah picks up somewhere around 445, uh, and in 432 is where uh, Nehemiah 13 is. So that gives us a little bit of a historical context to understand where we are, the time and place. Again, guys, this, this is a whole other aspect of this, but I, want, I just want to encourage you here. If you ever have the opportunity to go to Israel and see Jerusalem and see these places, you should go. It, it, makes this, it makes God's word so much more real, so much more tangible. These are real people, real places. This is not just, you know, reading a, a narrative. I'm reading Lord of the Rings right now. It's not Middle Earth, guys. This is, this is Jerusalem. This is a real place that we can go see today. So, like I said, Nehemiah is a book that I love, that I, I talk about quite a bit. Uh, and I, I use it a lot in, in talking in my work when I'm talking about how uh, Christians should think about public policy and, and, uh, and think about politics and government. And when I, when I do tell the book of Nehemiah, I'll give the, really a pretty high-level overview of the story of, of Nehemiah, of the book of, of Nehemiah, especially the, the first 12 chapters of it. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll do the whole story of Nehemiah through the, the three Bs, if you will, right? And some of you who have been here for the past few weeks, you'll be familiar with this. The, the first B is cupbearer, right? So Nehemiah was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, who was the king after King Cyrus. Uh, and he was sort of his right-hand man. The, the cupbearer is the one that tastes all the food and makes sure it's not poisoned. So he has to be with the king at all times, and they become best buds, right? And so he has the king's ear, and he hears about how even though the temple was rebuilt in Jerusalem, the walls were still torn down, and uh, Jerusalem had become a mockery amongst the nations. Their, their, their holiest site was still in shambles, and people were mocking it and, 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 and threatening it at all times. And so Nehemiah has, has this, uh, decides that he's going to go and ask the king, can I go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? And King Artaxerxes says, yep, yeah, not only can you go, here's the resources, here's letters to tell other nations that I'm blessing this to say you should go do this. So Nehemiah goes back uh, and he finds that the situation's even worse than he thought. And he's, he's really downtrodden, he's really depressed about it. And he says, okay, we're going to rebuild these walls. And he, and he rallies the Jews and they start rebuilding the walls. And sure enough, what, what ends up happening is all of these foreign forces, this guy Sanballat and Tobiah, who we'll talk about later on, they start, start threatening Nehemiah. And say that if you do this, we're going to kill you. We're going to destroy all this progress. It's going to be terrible for you. And Nehemiah says, no, we're doing this thing. And he, or, he rallies the Jews. And they rebuild the walls. And it's this big, big celebration afterwards. They do it. They accomplish it. He does what God called him out to do. And then after that, he goes into this whole, you know, chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. You hear this whole amazing story of the Jews rededicating themselves to God's word. You know, they understood that it was their sin that got them exiled in the first place. And so they go and recount how their sin, how they'd sinned against the Lord and God was faithful to them. And how he, God had brought them back to uh, Jerusalem and had allowed them to rebuild the walls and overcome their opponents and overcome all these obstacles. And it was this amazing, beautiful uh, ceremonies they went through. They signed this big scroll that, and where they pledged themselves to be faithful to God. And it's this amazing story of redemption. And guys, I, I got to say, that, that, that's Nehemiah 1 to 12. That story right there, right, that is the story that Christian conservatives love. 
The, the, the evangelicals of our, of our day, I would count myself amongst them, we, we love this story, right? What's not to, if you're a Christian conservative in, in today's culture, what's not to love about Nehemiah, right? I mean, first and foremost, you have Nehemiah, who's really one of the first lobbyists, right? He's going to the king, he's pulling on his ear, he's saying, come on, man, let me go back there, give me a little bit of help here. Getting some government bailouts, getting some pork to go back and, and build wall and, you know, all this stuff. And so, so he, gets, he gets the permission, and then he shows up in, in Jerusalem, and what happens? There's a hostile culture that opposes God's word. And he says, no, I'm going to stand up for Jesus. I'm going to stand up for God here and, and God's holiness, and we're going to withstand these attacks. And he's being threatened. Their lives are being threatened. He says, no, I'm going to do this. And he does it, and he triumphs, and he rebuilds the wall against all these haters and detractors. And he's yes, yes. And then he leads them all into celebrating God's word. And, and there's this great holiness and outcry, and it's great. Everyone's loving Jesus again. And what's he, how does he actually go about doing this? He gets to rebuild a freaking wall, guys. What's better than building a wall? It's amazing, right? Everyone loves building walls. Conservatives love building walls. It's awesome. He's got a sword in one hand and a hammer in another. Man, this is a conservative's best dream right here, right? And that's Nehemiah 1 to 12. And that's typically where, where guys in my shoes, we kind of finish the story. But that's not where the story ends. We leave off chapter 13 all the time because what happens in chapter 13? We find all of these people, the people that had just months before pledged themselves to God's holiness, pledged themselves not to do the things that led them astray. We see them going back to those very habits, those very things. So instead of Nehemiah getting to ride off and having, having statues built to him and, and having great stories told about him and having his own Netflix series told about how his great triumph, we see him desperate saying, remember me, oh my God, for my good. He's saying, God, I tried. At least remember me because I tried. I, I don't know. This is not how it was supposed to go. It's so anticlimactic. It doesn't make sense. And we, so a lot of times when we're telling the story, we leave this off. And, and why did this happen? How did this happen? It was because Nehemiah got the political victory, but hearts weren't turned towards God. And so it was all burned away and washed away. Guys, this is so important for our time today, for who we are as a, as a people, as Christians in the American context. I don't care if you're on the right or on the left. The reality is so often we are, it's, it's easy for us to look at the political space, look at government, and see the solutions to all of our problems lie there. If we can just get the political victory, if we could just ban abortion, if we can just get more racial reconciliation, if we can just get more poverty programs, we can get better immigration laws, then all of these things will be made right. But what do we see in the book of Nehemiah? If hearts aren't turned towards God, if hearts aren't turned towards Jesus, it will all burn away. Psalm 146 Verses 3 and 4. Put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When, breath, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. I, I tell you, I think maybe the best example of seeing this today uh, in, in, in our modern context uh, is something some of you might be familiar with. Uh, it's over the, 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 the old marriage debate that we used to have, the marriage amendments, Right? So let's flash back to the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, there was a, a push in states all across the country, including Arizona and Ohio, 
uh, for states to define marriage as the union of one man and one woman. This is a good and just public policy. I will, I'm happy to have that conversation with anyone that says, uh, we are going to bring together this union of men and women. We want to see more of these institutions come together uh, for children to be born out. And I, I will tell you, I'm, there's great public policy arguments for this, to say marriage should be defined as the union of one man and one woman, one woman as God defines it in his book. Uh, both outside of a religious argument and a public policy argument. So we, there was this big political movement that my organizations have, were a part of and we led, and there are few political movements in the country that were as successful as this. To have 31, 31 states ran these marriage amendment ballot initiatives where they went to the voters to, to put in state constitution that marriage is the union of one man and one woman. And 31 out of 31 states passed these. That's crazy. You'd be hard-pressed to find any other political movement that had that level of success. And then what happened? 15 years later, the Supreme Court comes through and redefines marriage altogether. And if we were to try to put one of these ballot initiatives back on in, in any state, in Arizona, in Texas, in Ohio, they'd go down 60, 70%. So what happened? We got the political victory, but we didn't get hearts turned towards Jesus. We didn't explain the why. People didn't understand why God's word is true and right and good and beautiful. Guys, so often we approach God's word as a, what's the least I need to do to be righteous? As opposed to asking the question, what is the most I can do to glorify this holy name? What's the most I can do to pursue the righteousness and grace and mercy of this God who loves me so much? And when we, all we do is we look and ask, what is the least I can do? We don't understand why the why behind God's law. We don't understand why it is God made things a certain way. Why it is God gave us this beautiful gift of marriage that perfectly helps us understand the marriage between uh, Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. And why God made us beautifully as men and women to, to create children and rear them up in the Lord. We didn't understand why, so we got the political victory. But then we lost, because we didn't, people didn't understand the why, people's hearts weren't, to under, to, uh, weren't torn towards Jesus, we also ultimately lost it all. And that's what you see happening in Nehemiah 13. They got the political victory. They rebuilt the wall. They got the temple rebuilt. Everybody was back there. It was great. It was supposed to be this big triumph. But instead, people turned and fell. Now, lest you think this is only a lesson for uh, those of us that operate in the political space, I want to go to uh, the book of Matthew here, Matthew 6, 31 through 33. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly fathers know that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Brothers and sisters, this call to focus on the why and the heart of Jesus instead of just the good works applies to all of life. I don't care what you're doing. If you're feeding the poor, if you're helping an addict, if you're helping an immigrant, if you're loving trying to serve your family, if you're not seeking first the kingdom of God, everything else will burn away. I can, give, I can give a homeless individual, I can give a hungry person food for a day. The next day they will be hungry. But if I give them living bread, they will never be hungry again. 
That is what, that's what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. That means we put the priority of the soul first and foremost. We put the priority of our soul first and foremost before all these other good works we want to do. Now, listen, if your soul is turned towards God, if you are pursuing the kingdom of God, all of these good works will flow. You will want to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. You will want to feed the homeless. You will want to help the drug addict. You'll want to help the, the orphan, the widow, the stranger. You'll want to see marriage lifted up and people flourish through God's beautiful design of one man and one woman and children in a lifelong union together. You'll want to see all of those things. But your heart first needs to be turned towards Jesus. Your heart first needs, because everything else will burn away. God's word and our souls will not. The question is, will our souls be in eternity with him or will they be burning forever in hell? This is the seriousness of this and this is what was lost in Nehemiah 13. We can see how good intentions can lead us astray. Now, I want to take that context and I want to look through briefly with you all chapter 13 and look through the four failures we see really in, in chapter 13. We see four specific failures going on uh, that, that, alt- that drive Nehemiah crazy and lead him to desperation in this desperate plea at the end. And you can see the people of God were focused on law following, so they were seeking on what's the minimum I need to do instead of uh, seeking the glory of God and understanding why God's law has a purpose. Guys, when you, read this, when you read this book and if all you see is a book of rules, you're misunderstanding it. This is a playbook for us to be the most human we can be, to be, made, to be pursuing the one who made us and pursuing our highest joy, our highest happiness. But too often we look at this thing as a book of rules, and when we do, we're bound to fail. This is what Jesus came to do, is to free us from the law, to say, hey, look, pursue the highest, not the lowest uh, means of getting by. So let's look at, uh, the, at Nehemiah 13, and particularly look at these four failures. So first and foremost, in verses 1 through 9, uh, you have this situation uh, where Eliashib, the high priest, uh, had, well, basically, Nehemiah had, uh, when Artaxerxes allowed for Nehemiah to come back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, he said, hey, at some point you've got to come back. I, you know, I still need you here. So Nehemiah at some point goes back and see, sees King Artaxerxes. And when he comes back to Jerusalem, he finds all of these things have gone astray. Uh, and one of which uh, was Eliashib, the high priest, the guy that was over the temple, had actually emptied out the stores in the temple where they have all their uh, tithes and offerings. He'd, he'd cleared all of that out. And allowed for Tobiah, those of you who have been here, remember, Tobiah was one of the main opponents of the Lord, of, of, of God's people, of Nehemiah. Uh, one of the main detractors threatening to kill Jews, all these types of things. Uh, he allowed Tobiah to come in and live there. Now, lest we sit back and become judgmental of Eliashib, I just want to point out that up until this time, when you're reading about Eliashib and Ezra and Nehemiah, he doesn't come off as a bad guy. Eliashib is one of the guys that helps Nehemiah rebuild the walls. He's uh, one of the guys that uh, is there for the dedication when they, when they sign this scroll and dedicate the people's lives to, 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 to God again and rededicate themselves. He, he doesn't, he's, not, he's not seen as somebody that's, that's really a detractor or, or, or a bad guy. And when I, when I read this, now th- this is my interpretation of this, guys. So th- I'm not saying this part here in particular is, is gospel truth, is the, is the historical account. But when I read this this time through, something really jumped out to me where I was like, man, I can, I can understand, if you put yourself in Eliashib's shoes, you can kind of understand what maybe he was thinking here, right? 
Tobiah is apparently, as, as we can tell in this book, he's a very important p- person. Politically, he's somebody who matters. He, can, he has access somehow to, to communicate to King Artaxerxes and other foreign nations. So maybe Eliashib is thinking, hey, look, there's this really serious opponent to God's word. And he, maybe instead of us being, at contention, you know, being contentious with each other all the time, maybe I just invite him in. And I, I, I give him a seat of honor in the temple. And now we're not, we're not fighting with each other anymore. What's, that, that seems like a pretty, pretty good idea. Right? That, that, maybe that'll help bring some peace to the community. What's so wrong with that? Right? So in Eliashib's mind, he's not, he's not necessarily doing something he's, he's thinking is evil, but maybe he's doing something that he sees as being helpful to God's people. But what is he doing in that instance? He's trusting himself instead of putting his trust in God and understanding why did God tell us to not let Eliashib here? If you look at verse 1 uh, and 2 in uh, chapter 13, Uh, It says, on that day they read the book of Moses in in the hearing of people. And in it, it was found that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Why? Why was it that way? Why did God make make the law that way? For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. So God had a reason for saying that Tobiah and his people should not be allowed in the church because they weren't seeking the good of of God's temple and God's people. But instead of Eliashib having faith in what God told him to do and and seeking the the best and highest good for his people, he made a compromise. And and we see the, 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 the consequences of that. So let's look at the second failure. We look at verses 10 through 14. It says, I also found out that portions of the Levites, this is Nehemiah speaking, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So what do we see happening here? Basically, the Levites are the priests of the temple, and Nehemiah comes back and finds out that the people of of, of Jerusalem are no longer financially supporting the church. They're no longer giving... Uh, to, to the temple. So that so much so that the priests, the Levites, the people who are responsible for caring for the temple and, and teaching God's word, they actually have to go and start working in the fields themselves to provide for themselves. Now again, guys, this one hits super close to home. And if we're all honest with ourselves, this is something that I'm sure a lot of us here struggle with, right? You know, just put yourself in the, the shoes of, those, uh, of the people of Jerusalem in that time, of the Jews of the time. You know, man, I really... I really could use a, a, you know, a, a, a new roof on our house. Maybe I just cut back on my tithes and offering just a little bit. Oh, man, I need a new carriage to get to work every day. I don't know what they use to get to work, but you get the idea. Ah, oh, man, that'd be, oh, you know what? My wife and I, we just haven't had a good night out in a while. We, we, we just need to go, get, you know, get, get the kids off someplace, hire a babysitter, and we're just going to go and have a weekend away. Man, I really need a week in Hawaii, which is where I just was. Maybe, maybe, maybe we're just not going to give as much to the church, to the temple. And when your mindset is such that, hey, what's, what's the least I need to do to be, to be righteous with the church and with God and all that kind of stuff? It's not a big deal. But when your question is, what can I do most to glorify God? What can I do most to pursue his holiness? Maybe you view your finances a little differently. Maybe I view my finances a little differently. Now, does that mean going on vacation is wrong? Does that mean... Taking your spouse out for a nice dinner is wrong. No. But the question with all of these things, this is one of the things Jesus was doing again and again, is what's the heart behind it? 
Is the heart saying that I know what to do with my money better than God does? And so I'm not going to follow his word? Or is the heart, I'm going to pursue God's at my fullest and his highest and do the most to bring glory to his name? And you see that the failure here of the Jews, and they were just slowly slipping away. Because again, it starts off in one place as saying, well, I'm just, we'll just do a little bit here. And the next thing you know, all of a sudden the temple is, is falling into disrepair and the, the Levites have to go out and start working in the fields. Let's look at the third failure. Uh, the third failure you see in verses 50, 15 to 22, where you see the people of God, uh, you see the people of God starting to do uh, uh, commerce, starting to, to buy and sell goods on the Sabbath. So the Sabbath was set aside for rest. Uh, Jewish people at the time were supposed to not be working that, during that time. So not only not uh, selling goods, for example, in the market, but also not buying goods. Uh, and what you had is you had all these foreigners coming through, people that were not of the people of God coming in and setting up shop inside the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, now, why would they be doing that? Well, very clearly, there was people, there were Jewish people that were buying things that day. They wouldn't be coming there if people weren't buying, right? And so uh, in verses 15, you start seeing uh, Nehemiah run them out. And then you look at verse 19, and it says, as soon, as soon as they were able to run them out, as soon as it began to grow dark in the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the door should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. He's going to say, no one's coming in here to sell on the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no, might be brought, no load might be brought in on that Sabbath day. So then what did they do? You know, the market finds a way, right? Uh, then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and I said, why do you lodge outside the walls? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come back on the Sabbath. So you see, uh, you see Nehemiah getting so frustrated because obviously these, uh, the, the, people, the, the Jewish people were just so desperate to, to continue to work, do, to, to, to not honor the Sabbath in that way so much so that these sellers would even, even were trying to lodge outside and Nehemiah is getting so frustrated by this. Now again, let's put ourselves in the, in the shoes of, of the Jews at this time and ask ourselves, you know what? You know, it's easy for us to look at them and condemn them and say, hey, guys, you were just exiled for these very sins, not honoring the Sabbath, not, not following God's word, and now you're going back to it. It's easy for us to just be like, oh, these terrible people. But let's even just look at ourselves. Why, we never, they, we're not asking, why did God give them the Sabbath? Why did God call us to Sabbath? Maybe not in the same structured format, uh, formation that the Jews used to have to uh, honor the Sabbath, but we're still called to have Sabbath. And Why? Well, one of the reasons I know for me is I have a tendency to think that uh, I'm the provider of my house. That if I'm not working hard enough, if I'm not putting in the time, the, the food's not going to get on the table. The, the mortgage is not going to get paid. My family's not going to be cared for. I've, I, it, man, if I'm not available, if I don't have my phone on me at all times, and I'm not, I'm not there to pick it up when it rings, man, everything's going to fall apart because I'm the one that's holding it together. And guys, that is a lie from the pit of hell that I fall into regularly. And maybe you do too. The Sabbath is there to remind us that God's our provider. And, and he cares and loves for us more than we care and love for ourselves. And the, 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 the Jewish people there, you could just see them saying, hey, look, you know, I'm just out of wine. There's a guy right here. What's the big deal? I'm going to just go get that. Who cares? Well, and if, if all you're doing is approaching the Sabbath as a law to be followed, that's not a big deal. But instead, if you're approaching that, why did God give us the Sabbath? 
for us to, to rest in him and seek his glory and seek the holiness of his name, it changes the, your mindset on these things. And you're far less likely to uh, break God's law when you have that mindset than when you have this bare minimum bar you're trying to achieve. Lastly, the section that Ben read for us, uh, the, the potentially xenophobic section about uh, foreign women, uh, and, and uh, you know, the, the section that was so confusing to me when I first read this. You know, this one, to me, is, is the, the easiest and the, and the most straightforward uh, one to, when you really step back and understand what God is doing here. Does, does God have something, is, is God a racist against the people uh, in, in uh, the area? The answer is no. Uh, and actually, if you turn back to the book of Ezra, uh, you'll see uh, when after Ezra rebuilt the temple, they had a great uh, Seder ceremony. And foreigners were invited in, foreigners who believed in God, the one true God. So this wasn't about necessarily a race of people that God didn't want in. This is about non-believers being part of the body. Because we all know this to be true, guys, that all too often uh, it's our closest relationships that impact our ability uh, to follow God. So if we have negative influences in our lives that are pulling us away from God at all times, the most important relationships, if our most important relationships are pulling us away from God, we know we're going to end up where we're going to end up. I mean, you, you, you heard that in the section that Ben read, uh, that Solomon, the, you know, King David's son, the guy that built the temple, he himself married, somebody, married women that were outside of God's people, and he was led astray. And so you see what's happening here is you see uh, the people of God doing that very same thing, their most important relationships, their marriages. They were marrying outside. They were unequally yoked with non-believers, and they get led astray. And you even see it happening with Eliashib, the high priest. Their, his own son was married Sanballat, so the other guy that was, was uh, uh, opposing uh, the Jews. Sanballat's daughter. He married Sanballat's daughter. And you could see them falling right back into this. And we know where this is going to end up, guys. And you know where this is going to end up. If your most important and your closest relationships are with individuals who do not believe in the one true God, who do not believe in Jesus Christ, I am telling you, they're going to lead you astray. Now, there might be those in the, in the room here today that uh, came to faith after being married to someone who's not in the faith right now. I will tell you, that's why God gave us this church, gave us his church, so that you can have important relationships around you to support you and to love you and encourage you in God's ways and build you up. Because ultimately, it's those close, it's, it's why I praise God for Ben and the Ponces and so many, because there are people in my life who encourage me to God's ways, who are not afraid to call me an idiot, uh, which is regular. <laughs> uh, because I am all too often willing uh, and, and will go astray. So, uh, you know, kind of wrapping up here, um, you know, you have this great kind of letdown then where you see Nehemiah just desperate. Last, the, the very, again, after all of this triumph in, in chapters 1 through 12, the, the, the book ends in, verse, in the last verse of 13 saying, where Nehemiah is crying out to God, remember me, oh my God, for my good. Because he's seeing the people going back to the very things that got them exiled in the first place. Uh, and if Nehemiah were to end right there, it would be a very depressing story. But as I reread it this time, I really, 
I actually came away from this book praising God because Nehemiah is really, Ezra Nehemiah is one of the last real narratives in the Bible before Jesus came. And let's just think about the whole history of the Jewish people from Abraham all the way, and, and they actually recount this uh, earlier in the book of Nehemiah, all the way through Moses where, you know, Moses got, you know, got, they're, they're trapped in, in slavery in Egypt and God frees them. And what's the first thing they do when they get out of Egypt? They build a freaking idol. And they start pursuing, they, they, they forget the God that just parted the Red Sea for them. And then you go into the book of Judges, and I remember going through the book of Judges here at uh, Arcadia about seven, eight years ago, and time and time again saying, and the people uh, did, did what was evil in, the, in God's eyes, and they fell back into their sin, and God forgave them. And he, and he was steadfast in his promises. And then we come to Nehemiah. And once again, and this time it's not even over generations. It's literally, like, it's basically months from the time that they rededicate themselves to the time they fall back into their sins. And guys, I think about this regularly, and I think about this as one of the reasons why we need to pray for our pastors. Pray for Frank, pray for, for Tyler. And You guys got like 14 Tylers here, right? If I just say Tyler, that covers all your pastors, right? <laughs> Frank and Tylers. Um, uh, when, I, when, I, when I think about them, and I think about just their day-to-day lives of, of, of pouring themselves out and, and seeing people fall away. But there's a big difference here, right? So at the, at the end of Nehemiah, what ends up happening? Uh, instead of God just saying, okay, guys, try again, or God doing what most of us would do and just wash our hands with it and walk away, he comes himself. He sends his son and sends his son to the cross to be the ultimate sacrifices for the sins because he knows this cycle will not end. You all know this. We all know this regularly. That despite our best efforts, this cycle of sin and falling away will not end. And so what did he do? He came and said, look, we'll put my blood on the altar now. No more of these scrolls and sacrifices. I'm coming down. I'm taking your sin. One time for all who believe in me. This is just the beauty of Nehemiah, understood in the whole biblical narrative. And this is the perfect segue to our time of communion. So I'd like to invite the, the band to come up and, and, and ask you to start let's turning our minds and turning our hearts to prepare ourselves for this beautiful time we have of remembering this gift that God gave us. I will tell you, I know in this room there are all types. There are those of you who have been uh, following Jesus for your entire lives. There are those of you who are newly coming to the faith, and maybe there are those of you in here that uh, are still trying to figure out who Jesus is and what he means to you. And, and, and I will just tell you, uh, we uh, serve a God uh, who is real and who understands us and who is not afraid of the mess of our lives. Again, I love reading the cha- this 13th chapter and, and trying to understand the humanity of the Jewish people because it's just so relatable, guys. How often do we make little sacrifices of, and little things that we do to, to, to not follow God's word because we can justify it in our mind? And we see those little compromises, little compromises, little compromises lead us into big sin, into big things that make us fall away. And, and a lot of us can be very patient, right? Even the most among us can be patient with our loved ones. Uh, 
but, uh, the, but eventually our patience runs out. But we serve a God of unending promises and unending love whose patience, he's ultimately come and given himself for our sins so that one, for one, for once and for all, we can be saved. So uh, I want to invite you to, uh, as the music starts going here, we'll be coming down the center aisle here to get communion. I'll ask the communion servers to come up. Um, and uh, if, do we still do communion servers here too? Or do we just grab them off the side there? You'll get, when you come down, you'll get a little cup of, uh, of uh, juice and a little bread representing the blood and the body of Christ. The blood representing the, uh, the new covenant uh, that God has given us so that no longer when we sin and fall away uh, do we have to offer sacrifices, but there has been one sacrifice through the blood of Christ for us to be forgiven. And then we'll get the, the, uh, the bread reminding us of the body of Jesus that was broken for us on the cross, the pain that he endured unjustly, the shame that he took on unjustly for us. Uh, that, that even though our sins were bountiful, our sins were many, the mercy he poured out on us was so much more. I want to leave you here with, with this quote from uh, 18th century pastor Benjamin, uh, Benjamin Grosvenor. Uh, for those of you who know your, your story of the, the crucifixion, Jesus, when he was on the cross, his side was pierced uh, with a spear. Uh, and Benjamin Groves, uh, Grosvenor wrote uh, to us, uh, speaking of as Jesus in this moment, he said, if this is Jesus speaking to us, if you meet that poor wretch who thrust the spear into my side, tell him there is another way, a better way, to come at my heart. If he will repent and look upon whom he has pierced and will mourn, I will cherish him in that very heart he is wounded. He shall find the blood he shed an ample atonement of shed, of the, for the sin of shedding it. And tell him from me, he will put me in more pain and displeasure by refusing this offer of my blood than when he drew my blood forth. Come on down when you're ready. Mercy is 
Thanks for blessing us, man. Uh, happy to have you here. Yes, give him a thank you. Came all the way from Ohio. Uh, well, thank you guys for being here and worshiping with us this morning. Uh, I'm going to give us our benediction and our prayer as we go out uh, from number six. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you, give you his peace now and forevermore. Amen. Go and live all of life all for Jesus. We'll see you next week.